0: Hello and welcome to On The Ledge podcast and as the jam once said this week we're going underground to talk about mycorrhizal fungi to any listeners of my age or older who may now have the song Going Underground by the Jam as their earworm for the day. As houseplant growers, we tend to be all about the leaves, but so much fascinating stuff is happening under the surface of our substrates, not least mycorrhizal fungi. And I'm joined by plant community ecologist, Dr. Sarah Emery, to find out all about these incredible fungi. Plus, I answer a question about a very chilly jade plant. But first, a uh, soupçon of housekeeping. There's been a New Year's rush of new patrons, including Jackie, who became a crazy plant person, Jeff and Elena, who became superfans, and Kay, who upgraded from legend to superfan. Apologies, that's actually the phone ringing in the office. Um, I've now got to wait for somebody in the house to answer it. Hang on. There we go. <laughs> Other news from me, my audiobook of the Allotment Keepers Handbook is now available not only on Spotify and on my own website, but also on Audible. So if you have an Audible subscription, use one of your credits to listen to my dulcet tones talking about growing food. Just Google Jane Perrone Audible and you'll find me. You can also listen to the podcast on there too. And I've signed off the final proofs for Legends of the Leaf It's coming close, guys. So thank you to those of you who've already pre-ordered it on your online bookshop of choice and those of you who've pledged. And if you like to frequent your local bookshop, then do go in and ask for it. You can ask in your local bookshop to pre-order a copy in. It should be possible. If you need to know the ISBN number, you can look that up. Um, on the Amazon site, or if you want me to tell you it, if you don't want to sully your mouse by going to Amazon, just let me know and I'll tell you what the ISBN number is and you should be able to order it from your local, friendly, independent bookshop too. On with the motley and it's time to talk mycorrhizal fungi, uh, an oft neglected part of gardening. So these are just fungi that team up with plants and form associations with those plants' roots, helping each other out, the plant benefits and the fungus benefits. But in connection with the world of houseplants, there is so much we still don't know about mycorrhizal fungi, but but Dr. Sarah Emery of the University of Louisville in the US has made it her mission to really investigate what's going on with these incredible fungi. So let's dive in to this subterranean world and find out more.
1: I'm Sarah Emery. I'm a plant ecologist and professor at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, uh, United States.
0: Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. This is a topic that people have been asking for, for literally years on the podcast, because I think as houseplant people, we hear about mycorrhizal fungi, but we don't really understand what they are or what they're doing. So let's start with the very basics. What are mycorrhizal fungi? Sure. So mycorrhizal uh, fungi are a
1: group of fungi that form associations with plant roots. And there's lots of different um, kinds of mycorrhizal fungi, fungi that associate strictly with orchids, fungi that associate with plants in the blueberry family, fungi that associate with trees. Uh, and a lot of my work is focused on uh, fungi, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, uh, fungi that associate with a wide variety of plants. And we generally define mycorrhizae as mutualism. So an association between plants and fungi where both the plant and the fungus uh, benefit. Uh, and that separates my crazy uh, from other types of fungi that can associate with with plant roots such as pathogens or commensals that are just hanging out in the plants
0: what i'm fascinated by is this mutually beneficial relationship between the fungi and the plant do we have any idea how that has evolved or how that's come about are there lots of things that we still don't understand about these the way these relationships work
1: the mycorrhizal relationship is uh, believed to be a really ancient relationship, and it uh, was actually um, important in the transition of plants to land. Um, you know, millions of years ago. Uh, so there's uh, evidence in the fossil record of uh, these fungal relationships with plant roots, and so they're really critical for um, kind of the story of plant evolution. Despite that, there's just a lot that we don't know. So, mycorrhizal fungi, or the group of mycorrhizal fungi I study, uh, is not extremely diverse. So, there's only about two to three hundred species of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, and um, despite that, we don't, we know very little uh, about the the function of individual species. And so, uh, we for a long time, ecologists thought that mycorrhizal fungal species were generalists. So um, you know, A plant could associate with lots of different species of mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, mycorrhizal fungi could associate with lots of different um, species of plants and were generally beneficial. Um, but we're starting to find out that um, different species of, of mycorrhizae can serve very different roles in in a plant, and some species are more beneficial than others for different plants. And so there's a lot of very species specific uh, interactions that it's still not very well understood.
0: I mean, you've already mentioned orchids there, and I know that orchids have a particular specialist relationship with mycorrhizal fungi. Um, are there other houseplant sort of groupings that have specific? relationships with certain mycorrhizal fungi. And and I'm thinking of our houseplants in our house, I'm imagining that maybe in our homes, those mycorrhizal fungi aren't necessarily present in that substrate that's come from the nursery. So presumably they can survive without these uh, fungal relationships.
1: Orchids are a good example of a group of plants that absolutely need their mycorrhizal partners. The seeds of of orchids are too small to germinate successfully without their fungal partner. Um, But most other plants are not that strongly dependent on their uh, mycorrhizal fungal partner. Um, We know that, so again, the group that I study, the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi um, can associate with um, 80% of all flowering plants and that's across um, almost all plant families. So there's only just a couple of plant families that don't form associations with mycorrhizal fungi. So um, probably the the best well-known family is brassicaceae or the mustard family. So, you know, if you're a gardener and growing broccoli or cauliflower or mustards, um, they do not form associations with mycorrhizae at all. But, I mean, there's a couple of other families that don't form very many associations with mycorrhizae, but most flowering plants, do form associations, um, beneficial associations with with mycorrhizal fungi. Um, However, most of them don't absolutely need uh, mycorrhizae. So we view mycorrhizae more or less as a biofertilizer. So uh, the fungus can help with um, nutrient uptake and water uptake, uh, which uh, basically by acting as extra roots for a plant's Um, The hyphae of the fungus can really explore the soil a lot better than plant roots. Hyphae are a lot smaller than roots. And so it can really take advantage of um, burrowing around in the soil to to access nutrients that a plant wouldn't necessarily be able to access on its own. Um, But uh, again, that's not an obligate relationship. So most plants can survive just fine uh, without their fungal partner.
0: What's interesting about that is that it occurs to me that in the situation of having a houseplant in your home where, let's face it, it's in quite an unnatural situation, uh, that there could be a lot of benefits to um, giving the plant that extra boost of giving it that mycorrhizal fungal relationship. Um, but it's interesting to know that they can live without them, too. I know you've been carrying out a lot of research in this area. Can you tell me a bit about the research project you've been working on and what you've been discovering?
1: I'm a plant ecologist, and so my main research interests academically are focused on understanding plant diversity and and uh, interactions between plant species and other species in the environment. And a lot of my work is focused on plant fungus interactions and in a lot of different systems. So, I've worked a lot in sand dune ecosystems and agricultural systems and prairies. Uh, But I've um, recently expanded some of that uh, long-term work or long-term interest I've had in plant fungus relationships to look at foliage plants that are uh, important for uh, horticulture for indoor houseplants. And this was through a grant that was funded through the National Horticulture Foundation here in the U.S., uh, and uh, they provided funding to look at the potential benefits of mycorrhizal fungi for um, indoor house plants that are val- valued for foliage rather than for flowers or fruit production or other uh, sorts of growth benefits. And so uh, I've recently wrapped up a a project that was uh, about two years long looking at a lot of different mycorrhizal species and how they associate with three main types of indoor plants. So I've done a lot of work with um, aglaonemas or Chinese evergreens, uh, a couple of different species of sedums, uh, and um, a few different varieties of coleus. And I chose those species because they represent a really wide variety of the, of the types of house plants that we have. So all the way from, you know, a racy uh, kind of tropical foliage plants like aglaonemas to more drought tolerant desert species like those um, uh, sedums. And then coleus I was interested in because it's uh, a really common outdoor bedding plant, but also can be grown as an indoor plant um, and that's in the mint family. And so a really wide variety of uh, growth forms for plants and then looking at how different mycorrhizal species could benefit um, growth of those plants. Um, And then secondarily, I was also really interested in whether these mycorrhizae could influence leaf coloration. And so uh, we know that mycorrhizae can act as biofertilizers, just generally increasing growth of plants. But there's also Some species that we believe act as more bioprotectors and so triggering immune responses in plants, uh, which could help with plant resistance to herbivores or pathogens. But one part of um, a plant's um, immune response is the production of uh, chemicals like anthocyanins that can help with plant resistance to herbivores, but also value as um, kind of a nice red color in leaves. And so the idea with the project was to see whether there were different species of mycorrhizal fungi that could influence growth versus influence leaf color uh, in these plants. From
0: the point of view of the horticulture industry, where is this going? Is this this something that you can see being used to change the characteristics of plants or to make them grow better in our homes? I do think that it's uh, a growing industry. So, you know, in the U.S., there's
1: probably 50 or so different commercial products that include mycorrhizal fungal species as uh, biofertilizers for all sorts of plants, whether in your garden or or houseplants, Um, and probably about the same or even more um, products um, in Europe. Uh, And there's um, a lot of interest in knowing whether, you know, diversity of these mycorrhizal fungi are important. So uh, the kind of really common products that are on the market tend to only have one mycorrhizal species, um, a species that's known as rhizophagus interatices, um, sometimes called glomus interatices, which is kind of um, a really hyper-common mycorrhizal species that's really pretty easy to propagate and grow. And so that's the number one species that's included in most commercial inoculum. Uh, But I think um, uh, companies are realizing that diversity of of fungal species might be important. And so they're starting to include a lot more uh, diverse mixtures of mycorrhizae. Sometimes that's well thought out. Sometimes it isn't. So, for example, there are some commercial products that include uh, a group of mycorrhizal fungi called ectomycorrhizal fungi that um, are really important in forests and for trees, but uh, most houseplants do not form associations with ectomycorrhizal fungi. So, there's really no reason to have that um, in a product. So... Despite the fact that there's all of these products on the market, there's very little um, in the way of scientific tests of those products um, in terms of their efficacy and effects on plant growth um, uh, or, you know, fruit production or flower production. Um, And in fact, there's been um, just kind of as a note of warning, there was a paper that was a scientific paper recently published um, earlier this year that showed that about 80% of all the commercial products in Europe didn't um, have viable propagules. So we're basically dead. And so I think, um, you know, on one side, there needs to be a lot of quality control for, for companies that are interested in, in mycorrhizae as an inoculum, and then also more research on the the potential benefits of including uh, multiple species of
0: mycorrhizal fungi uh, in an inoculum. That is interesting. I guess it's a question of, well, asking questions and and reading the small print. Do they do these products usually tell you what they actually include in terms of different strains, or is that not something you're going to read on the packet?
1: Uh, so in the U.S., anyway, um, our, the packets are, are are labeled with the the species that um, are present in in a, in the a, uh, product. Um, and usually some measure of the number of propagules. Um, But if you're not familiar with the scientific names of the fungi, or um, a lot of products also contain some bacteria, um, some products contain yeast, um, it it can be hard, I would think, for the consumer to know what the purpose of all of those uh, uh, or microorganisms are in in a
0: product. To my chat with Dr. Sarah Emery soon but now it's time for question of the week which comes from Penelope via the medium of Instagram and this one strikes close to home because Penelope's mum has been in tears on the phone because a 20 year old jade tree that's Crassula ovata also known as the money plant has totally collapsed and it lives in an unheated conservatory and been okay in there for a long time but suddenly seems to have collapsed in the cold snap that we had here in the UK before Christmas and the picture from Penelope looks pretty miserable. The stems are all keeled over and and it's very droopy. So Penelope's wondering what to do next. It's been brought inside uh, and Penelope's wondering if a big chop back is what's needed. Penelope, I can speak from experience on this one because I accidentally left my beautiful Crassula ovata Hummels sunset in my greenhouse during the cold snap. It shouldn't have been there. It was way too cold out there. It's not heated. And I just forgot to bring it in, quite simply. No other excuses other than uh, perimenopausal brain fog. Thank you, hormones. Uh, So that plant is looking a lot worse than your plant actually. I'll put pictures of both the plants in the show notes. Penelope's mum's plant is definitely bigger than mine and I have greater hopes for it than I do my plant. I think my plant's gone. I felt at the very base of the stem and that has frozen solid. So I think the chances of my plant coming back are small, but I'm still going to give it a go. What would I recommend for Penelope though? I would say this plant needs to be given time It definitely needs a big chop back, but uh, and I would definitely remove any parts that are distinctly mushy. It's just a question of cutting it back until you see material that doesn't look like it's been frozen and hasn't turned to mush, and then waiting and hoping that it will re-sprout. I think looking at the picture, Penelope, I think there's a good chance that it will re-sprout. It doesn't look as if it's been badly affected or certainly not as badly affected as my plant. So there is hope if you've got a plant that's totally mushy, even if there are some roots, they might have survived. So it's worth giving it a few weeks or months to re-sprout. And certainly with this plant, I would say cut back. You could cut all the foliage off it and there's still a good chance it will re-sprout Penelope. So all is not lost. Mine, on the other hand, I think is is probably done, but I'm still going to give it a whirl because I don't want to lose that plant. I did lose a few things, a few cacti and succulents. A couple of things that I wasn't expecting to lose, like an Apontia monocanther, which I'd assumed was going to be tougher than it actually was. But I think even that, if I cut that back to the base, the base, I think, will probably still be okay. So with these succulents that have been hit by unexpected cold conditions, you know, if that foliage has been Completely frozen most of the time, that means it's game over. I've got my beautiful Echinopsis subdenudata that's happened to uh, that plant, it's solid, frozen solid and now it's defrosting and it's gone moldy and mushy. So that one's going in the bin. This is a hard to deal with when you're a house plant owner, but I couldn't bring everything into the house, my brain wasn't working properly to remember what needed to be brought in. So I just have to live with it. It's hard, there are going to be people who have had these kind of losses and it's tough, but give things a chance to come back. And this is a reason, as I say, to make sure that you do take cuttings of absolutely everything. I did have a small cutting of that Hummel sunset, so the plant will live on. So whatever you do, take cuttings of the plants you love. It's so important. So I hope that's okay, Penelope, and that your plant revives. Do let me know how it goes and what happens. And if you've suffered terrible losses, then do let me know. Um, I would love to help you out with any of those problems you're having. Plants are incredibly resilient. So don't give up hope for your plants if they do suffer some cold damage. And do listen back to the what to do with the dead houseplant episode where I talk more about how to uh, tell whether a plant really is dead or not. I'll put the link to that in the show notes under the Q&A section. And if you've got a question for on the ledge, do drop me a line on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. Now let's return to all matters fungal. Is it a case of, well, okay, you're better off rather than buying these products making the soil environment something i mean i i'm kind of the the phrase that's coming to my mind is build it and they will come is mycorrhizal fungi going to turn up in your substrate if you just make the conditions right or is that only something that can ever happen in the actual ecosystem in in when the plant's growing in its native soils
1: yeah that's a great question um so you know, I do think that houseplants represent a unique environment, soil environment for plants or indoor um, pots, because they do tend to be much more sterile than outdoor soils would be. Um, the the sterile potting mixes or the soilless potting mixes don't typically have mycorrhizae in them naturally. Uh, and so I do think there could be an argument for, these amendments to be really important for house plants under certain conditions, as opposed to plants in your outdoor garden or bedding plants, Uh, because mycorrhizae are pretty ubiquitous. So unless you have just really terrible soils, I would expect mycorrhizae to be almost everywhere. Um, At least some of the really common species to be in almost all soil types. You you know, my main research is actually in Great Lakes Sand Dune, Uh, ecosystems, and those are really sterile, um, almost pure sand um, soils, and we still find mycorrhizae in in those systems. So mycorrhizae do get around um, pretty easily, but for indoor plants that are growing in commercial potting mixes, um, soilless potting mixes, I wouldn't expect mycorrhizae to be in those mixes, and so it would make sense to potentially add mycorrhizae to soil to those indoor uh, plants
0: it's interesting because here in the uk certainly i don't hear or up until recently i've heard very little about mycorrhizae in house plants but i've heard a lot about mycorrhizae in things like roses like products specifically for things like roses um but I, your argument is very convincing that actually if you are going to target yourself uh in terms of where to where to put mycorrhizal products house plants would seem to be the one <laughs> for the reasons you've just explained It's so interesting. One of my other worries though with with this is that somebody's gonna be putting some mycorrhizal fungi products in with their house plants and then following up with a systemic uh for thrips or something and is gonna damage basically wipe out what they've just added by using some other product that is it's not going to be friendly to the mycorrhizal fungi is that an issue
1: insecticide shouldn't affect
0: mycorrhizae
1: um i would say that if you you know any sort of systemic fungicide so if they're having some sort of um root rot problem or um some sort of pathogen, fungal pathogen, where you would be applying a fungicide, systemic fungicide to the soil. That would definitely kill mycorrhizae, Um, but insecticides shouldn't. Um, Fertilizers are interesting. I think this is maybe one reason why we don't see widespread benefits of mycorrhizae in houseplants is because we, we tend to baby our houseplants and give them... You know, lots of fertilizer and, and water, and so the benefits that mycorrhizae would provide plants in a more natural system in terms of access to hidden nutrients and access to to water that that roots have problems um, finding. You know, those benefits are not necessarily as important in inside, uh, and so you know, unless you tend to forget to water your plants or don't fertilize very often, you might not see very dramatic effects of, of mycorrhizal fungi in terms of growth. Um, I will say, I, I think we almost, we don't know very much at all about the bioprotector side of mycorrhizal fungi. And so I think there could be an argument for mycorrhizal fungi uh, helping to protect plants against things like, um, you know, uh, thrips or mealy bugs or other insect pests and um, I have you know that's hopefully the next steps for my own research is to look at those not just biofertilizer effects but bioprotector effects uh, to um, and I do think that could be important in
0: uh, house plants yeah and presumably that's a could be a massive um, boon for the house plant production industry if they can add mycorrhizal fungi that can help with those issues
1: right yes. And there's certainly been some work with uh, things like roses and other um, like bedding plants showing that mycorrhizae can increase um, resistance to pests and diseases in outdoor settings. But um, as far as I know, nothing has been done indoors um, with uh, foliage plants.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Perhaps this is Coles to Newcastle, as they say, but I don't know if you have many houseplants at home, but has your research impacted on how you treat plants yourself? I feel guilty about this, but no, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> Don't feel guilty about killing plants, no. if that's what you're about to say, because I think people think that I've got this amazing... I mean, I have got a lot of plants, but, you know, I still kill plants. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure it's the same. I have a ton of plants,
1: but they, I tend to have kind of the Darwinian approach to houseplants. So if they can survive in my house, that's great. And then if they die, then I just replace it with something that can survive. So,
0: um. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh. Me too. Me too. But I wonder whether there's any correlation between mycorrhizal fungi and success as a houseplant. But like species that particularly have a particularly good range of mycorrhizal fungi relationships, whether that kind of makes them better houseplants. I don't know. I'm slightly riffing here, but I'm thinking of there's, there's certain characteristics that really good houseplants seem to have and share in common. And I'm just wondering if like a really rich mycorrhizal fungus world might be one of those things. But I mean, I'm sure that's, that's another 10 years of research right there.
1: <laughs> right. I don't think we know the answer to that. Um, I think there's reason to expect that some groups of plants might do better. Um, like a lot of grasses are really strongly mycorrhizal, asters, uh, but those don't tend to be very typical house plants. So it might be actually that the Really common house plants thrive because they don't, they aren't dependent on those mycorrhizal relationships.
0: Yeah, I, I, I was just going to say actually the actual reverse <laughs> of what I was saying is probably true that they, you know, the ones that kind of don't need that really really specialist one, they can only survive with this particular, uh, you know, uh, strain um, is probably the way the way it goes. I mean, it, it, are there more things that you want to discover? in in your research that uh questions that remain unanswered generally about mycorrhizal fungi
1: yes <laughs> I think there's a lot of different ways to go <laughs> um you know with regards to houseplants i am definitely interested in those bioprotector effects and whether um species that are not typically included in um these soil amendment products uh, might be better protectors for plants uh and then kind of more broadly um in, the, um, my research lab looks at mycorrhizae in a lot of different systems, and so one of my students is interested in mycorrhizal fungi in agricultural um, soils and interactions between biochar as a soil amendment and mycorrhizae, and there's some evidence that adding both biochar and mycorrhizae can, to soils can improve um, soil carbon, um, soil organic matter, Uh, And then um, I'm really interested in interactions between fungi above and below ground. Uh, And so I have a a research project looking at what, what we've called the mycobiome. So, you know, we talk about the human microbiome uh, in terms of the bacteria that live inside of us, but uh, plants are, have the same organ, microorganisms inside them, but they are dominated by fungi. And so the mycobiome, Uh, And we know very little about whether fungi that live in leaves interact at all with the fungi that live in plant roots and whether their control, whether the plant has control um, in uh, the types of fungi that colonize plant roots versus leaves and uh, whether there's any sort of communication going on between above and below ground fungi. So that's kind of the big picture for for my research in lots of different systems where the houseplant part is uh, kind of a smaller below, focused mostly on below ground interactions.
0: Well, that's fascinating. I'd never really thought about that. But of course, I'm imagining there are fungi roaming, or perhaps that's the wrong word, but roaming around um, plants above ground. And I mean, again, it's a whole nother world that um we need to remember remember when we're thinking about our house plants and uh it's not just you know the springtails and the the fungus that larvae underground and the the mycorrhizal fungi It's all going on this is what this is why plants are so fascinating well i hope you'll come back on the show when you've discovered more on this issue because i (laughs) want to know the answer to that um but it is really fascinating to hear about this hidden world Uh, and this relationship between fungi and uh, houseplants. So thank you so much for sharing that with us, Sarah.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you so much to Dr. Sarah Emery. And do check out the show notes for useful information and links to Dr. Emery's research. That's all for this week's show. I will be back next Friday with another cornucopia of houseplant delights just for you. Until then, I hope your houseplants continue to bring you great joy. Bye! heard in this episode was roll jordan roll by the Joydrops, the road we used to travel when we were kids by komiku and oh mallory by josh woodward all tracks are licensed under creative commons visit the show notes for details